From Santa Cruz, California, I'm Gary Shapiro, and this is From the Bookshelf. Thanks so much for joining me. Phil Galston uh, joins me now. Uh, Phil Galston is an educator, an historian of uh, popular music. He's a producer and a great songwriter who has written songs for Vanessa Williams and Celine Dion and Chicago and Sheryl Crow and, and many others. And uh, Phil, Phil Galston, welcome back to the show. It's nice to see you. Nice to see you, Gary. And now we've just revealed that this is more than radio. Yes, we're actually looking at each other. <laughs> well, uh, uh, American songwriting lost one of its great uh, talents, the great lyricist Cynthia Wow, who um, uh, has written some of the... It's, I was looking through her catalog. It's amazing how many great songs she wrote and for so many diverse artists. And uh, I know that you're not only a fan of her work, but that you knew her quite well. And, and so I was hoping that we could talk a little bit about her. Well, yes, it's my pleasure. I really haven't had a chance to process this. And so I'm very grateful for the opportunity to talk about her with that in mind. I mean, that's my goal. Um, I knew she was ill for quite some time. And it was it was sad. And as it often is when somebody dies prematurely. I mean, she was 82, but it was premature because she was vital. And she was one of the most health conscious people and healthy Mm. people I knew. Always, always being careful of diet and exercise. So it's, it's, it's quite sad. It is odd to think, you know, uh, that that that's, not old, eighty-two, but as we get closer to eighty-two, it seems a lot younger. And but people are living, you know, much much longer these days, and that's a good thing. Yeah. Uh, and she leaves such a rich legacy. I was putting together a music show last week, and there were so many songs. I mean, I knew that she had written "You've Lost That Love and Feeling," which is the, I believe, has the record for being played the most times on AM radio. I think. Well, seven. it's it's. BMI, the Performance Rights Organization's uh, honoree as the most performed song in history, which is saying something because BMI also represents yesterday. Right. So it tops yesterday. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, and uh, but we're talking about the actual record of the Righteous Brothers as being the most played, not just the. I mean, it's been recorded. By no, it's the, uh, no it, that refers to the most performed song. So it's the Righteous Brothers version, Hall and Notes version, and every other version anybody ever recorded, and there are many. And then she also wrote Soul and Inspiration for the Righteous Brothers, which is another great, great song. Yeah. And we should acknowledge right at the top that she wrote these songs with her husband, songwriting partner, soulmate, Barry Mann. And they're still, they were still married. Oh, yes. Very much so. And uh, and and they started their collaboration. I think it, some people might have seen the Carole King musical Beautiful, which is really also the Man and Wow musical because it tells the story not only of Gotham and King, but of Man and Wow and their their rivalry, friendship. Yeah, it was it was both. Uh, the first time I met Cynthia in person, we had already written a song together, Long Distance. Um, she told me that there was an idea uh, to, to create a musical about two couples who were great friends 
and deeply competitive. And I said, well, what do you mean deeply competitive? And she said, well, of course, we were in the same songwriting staple and Al Don Music, Don Kirshner's music publishing company. And um, she said, let me illustrate it this way. Uh, one time we decided it'd be fun to uh, go away for the weekend to the Berkshires. We were all living in New York, obviously. So we got in the car and it was a lot of fun until the uh, competition stretched to who had more songs played on the radio during the drive. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think that's interesting because I'm sure songwriters want to write hits. There's so many wonderful deep cuts. In fact, uh, I found a track that Carol King had written the music and Cynthia Weil had written the lyrics. Yeah, I think that's the, I'm pretty sure that's the only one. And these women were best friends for, you know, a hundred years. And I the only one. Um, I can't remember, but I think so. Uh, you know, I got, I, when I met Cynthia, which is a story unto itself, but when I met her, I was such a deep fan. And uh, I knew I knew a lot about her work. I knew a lot about Barry's work. Uh, I knew about their work together, of course. And um, I just couldn't wait to ask questions. You know? <laughs> I mean, we'd already written a song and now we're having lunch at Jerry's Deli in Sherman Oaks, California. And I get to begin to ask questions. But the thing about her was that she was very interested in people and she was very generous and incredibly down to earth. And she asked me probably more questions or at least as many as I asked her. She wanted to know everything. It was just such a wonderful beginning. And um, I think it was the next day or within a couple of days, she called me and she said, well, I was telling Barry how much fun I had uh, hanging with you. He wants to meet you. Oh, isn't that nice? So on that same trip, we met and I said to Barry, um, look, I hope it goes without saying that any songwriter worth their royalties uh, is influenced, has been influenced by you. Uh, whether they realize it or not. He said, well, thank you, thank you. And I said, but let me tell you how deep it goes for me. He said, yeah. I said, I was already writing songs when I heard Bill Medley's record, Brown Eyed Woman. And he said, oh yeah, man, that didn't do as well as we hoped. You know, there was always this <laughs> reflection on the career aspect. I said, well, I realized that, but you know, Barry, that song made me want to be a songwriter. I was already a songwriter, but that song made me want to be a songwriter. I, I left the car where I'd heard it on the radio. I was in high school and I went inside and I sat down at the piano and I figured it out right away because it was so great. Well, that's neat. It's good that you got to connect that way. And I, and I imagine you have to sort of tone that down a lot of times because you're constantly meeting. I mean, I know you worked with... Uh, Carl Wilson of the Beach Boys intensely did an album with him or two. And you're constantly meeting people who were your idols when you were a kid and you have to sort of play it cool, right? Yeah, it's it's um it's an interesting part of 
part of the work, I've only been afraid, or afraid, maybe not, reluctant to meet two people in my life who I had the opportunity to meet, Ringo Starr and Paul McCartney. Mm-hmm. Um, I was invited to meet both of them, and I just wasn't sure I could do it. And? Uh, but, yeah, I mean, um, God, there's so much one could say about that. But meeting Cynthia, um, but meeting Cynthia was was special on so many levels for the reasons I've given, but for an, an additional reason or an additional illustration of what I said about her down to earthness. Um, uh, an AR man, Jay Landers, who's best known for being Barbara Streisand's AR man for many, many years, but he was at Columbia Records at the time. And uh, I went to see him to play him some songs. And uh, he said, you know, I think you'd be a great match with Cynthia Weil. Would you be interested in meeting her? And I hope my jaw didn't fall too far, but I said very coolly, absolutely. Yes. (laughs) Okay. He said, okay, I'll let her know. And next thing I know, we're talking on the phone. And she says, in the course of this conversation, do you ever come to LA? And I say, yes. She said, well, we'll get together when you come here. Meanwhile, do you want to try to write something long distance now? And I said, I'd I'd be thrilled. I'd be honored. Great. She said, do you have a piece of music you want to send me? I don't write music at all. And I said, well, actually, I don't do it that often, but I do have a piece of music. She said, okay, put it together, send it to me. Here's my address. And, uh, Took me a little while, but I got it together and I sent it to her. I was, you know, very nervous that she loved it. And I probably fretted it over it for a little while. But I sent it and she called me, said, I love this. It's great. It's fantastic. And I said, God, that's such a thrill. Okay. She said, okay, you know, give me a little while and I'll get back to you. Just, you know, a couple of days, as I recall, it went by. And she called and she said, do you have a fax machine? And I said, no, but I'll get one. (laughs) And I went out to a local store and bought a fax machine and brought it back and connected it to our phone line and called her and said, okay, I've got a fax machine. Said, all right, give me the number. I said, well, it's the same number that you've been speaking. (laughs) Okay. So I sat there and the phone rang and the, Lights and the bells and the whistles and the paper starts rolling. And at a snail's pace, of course, the way fax machines were in those days, outspooled a lyric to a piece of music of mine written by Cynthia Weil. And at the top, it says Weil and Galston. No, I should said Galston and Weil. And I read it through. And I can't believe that I don't like it. Oh, no. <laughs> I like I like some of it, but I don't love the whole thing. Now, you know, uh, Phil, I didn't mean to interrupt, but now when you write a song, oftentimes you have a title in mind that kind of. And yes, was that I did not. You nope, nothing. I, so it was just in this case, I did not. Okay. No, I did not. And, what, and so what was the song called? Have a little faith. Okay. Before John Hyatt's have a little faith, I might point out. 
Okay. Titles, of course, are not copyrightable. No. So, so I liked I liked it, but I didn't love it, and I particularly didn't like a couple of aspects of it. Now, what do I do, Gary? Do I come a while back and say, uh, listen, you know, you're pretty good. You've written some good stuff, but this one doesn't. What do I say? I don't know. I guess you have to tell her, though, right? I didn't know what to say, and I didn't know what to do. And I sat there trying to decide, and I waited, and I thought, I've got to think of the right thing. What am I going to do? And the phone rang, and I picked it up. And it was her. Said, Hi, it's Cynthia. I said, hi. She said, listen, I'm as neurotic as the next Jew. (laughs) So if you didn't like it, just tell me. I'm sitting here wondering what you thought. And I said, oh, I'm so sorry. She said, here's the thing you have to understand. I've got to earn it every time out. Just like every other songwriter. So Let's just make it the best song it can be. Just tell me what you don't like and I'll go back to work. So she opened the door for you. She did. And that was the first of many doors. And she reworked it according to my comment, with my comments in mind. She sent it back. I loved it. I made a, I cut a demo vocal of it and then we began to shop it. And eventually it was recorded by the, um, the kind of jazz pop band from Philly, Pieces of a Dream. Oh, of course. And with a lovely female vocal on it. And Gary, I'm sorry to admit that it took me probably eight years, 10 years to look at the record again and realize that it was Pieces of a Dream featuring Eva Cassidy. Oh, my God. So I have an Eva Cassidy cut. Uh, she's a legend now. A legend. Total. Total. Oh, that's it's amazing. Yeah. Well, so. um, as a lyricist, Cynthia Weil is, I mean, I think one of the things that makes her so great is that she is both poetic and romantic and also clever. And she could write a novelty song as easily as anything else. Um, is that just because she's really good or is that a hallmark of hers or, or what? Um, well, I think, I think you've captured, um, I think you've captured many of her best qualities as a songwriter. Um, so Cynthia was, first of all, Highly educated. She graduated from Sarah Lawrence. Uh, She went to, uh, before that, the Ethical Culture School. And I think she went to Fieldston High School. Both very, very fine private schools in New York. Uh, She came from an educated background. Um, And her goal was to write for the theater. And she had the wherewithal, of course, going to the theater when she was growing up was not that expensive a proposition, but still she had studied the lyrics of great Broadway lyricists. And she had a connection through her family to Frank Lesser. Mm. And when I think she was still in college, I'm pretty sure I have to check with Barry, but I'm pretty sure she uh, was invited or given the opportunity 
to uh, show Frank Lesser some lyrics. And she went to his office and uh, she showed them. And he said, um, well, these are very promising. Um, my suggestion is you get in the pop world, get some experience there, and then you'll move towards theater. And it was her goal, her entire career, to write for the theater, which she ultimately did um, in a show she and Barry wrote um, <clears throat> uh, based on the great movie Mask. Not the mask, but mask. Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a whole other story. The Cher uh, movie about that's the right. boy with the face. Mm -hmm. right, which they wrote uh, with the book writer Anna Hamilton Phelan, who had written the screenplay. And and how did the show do? Not well. Mm -hmm. It didn't it didn't go as they hoped. It was quite good. I actually was involved in producing it to a point, um, and I thought it was quite special. I certainly thought their songs were marvelous. So let's go back to her qualities as a lyricist, because there's an yeah. interesting connection to the mask lyrics. So. Um, Before I had written with Cynthia, yeah, before I wrote with Cynthia, I was writing with the great blue-eyed soul singer Felix Cavalieri, best known for The Rascals. And he was making a solo album, and I'd been asked to write with him, and I loved writing with him. I lo he's just a wonderful person besides being an incredible singer and musician. And um, I remember he came to New York from Los Angeles, and we sat down and I said, so uh, who were you writing with? Who were you working with out there? And he said, well, you know, this person, that person, and Cynthia Wilde. And I said, oh, no kidding. How was that? He said, well, it was the strangest thing. And I said, what? He said, she gave me a lyric and I read it. And I thought, what's special about this? Mm. And then I sang it. Said it was incredible incredible to sing. And this is a quality that not every successful lyricist has. I could point to lyrics by some, they, they can go nameless for now, but from some really notable, incredibly successful songwriters. People are considered great. I consider them great too, where the lyrics don't really scan that well, where they don't sound as good as they might. Whereas my mother would say they have the accent on the wrong syllable. It's, <laughs> yeah. just not, it's just not working. They're not paying attention to that. You won't find a Cynthia Wilde lyric with any of those qualities. That's number one. Number two, when you think of Cynthia's age and you think of the time in which she grew up listening to music, we, we can't call her a post-Dylan songwriter, right. but she's not a traditionalist. She had a respect for the tradition. She wrote to me, I wrote to her when Jerry Goffin died and sent condolences. And she wrote back and said, yep, best damned lyricist of all time. Mm. And she appreciated in Jerry all of the qualities you spoke of, because Jerry had all those qualities too. Right, yeah. He could write a novelty song with the best of them. Yep. And and then Jerry had another quality just to touch on briefly, <laughs> which is 
which um, he he and Nick Ashford, uh, the late Nick Ashford, both had this quality, and that and that is they could write a lyric as men from a woman's point of view. Oh well, yeah. Well, so Jerry, Jerry wrote "Will You Love Me Tomorrow," which yeah. he wrote overnight. You may remember that story. Uh, it, coming after coming home from his day gig as a chemist, and then Valerie Simpson, when I interviewed her, told the great story of how Nick came back from his daily walk, walked into the, their house and said, "I've got a great title." And Valerie said, "What?" He said, "I'm every woman." <laughs> And she said, well, I'll write the music. You put your hands on your hip and write the lyric. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, now it's interesting that you mentioned that song because Chaka Khan's record of Through the Fire, written by Cynthia Weil, that is one of the most beautiful songs. And I was thinking about it, how, um, you know, the the voice of Chaka Khan, you know, is what sells that record and makes that record so incredible. but. She's not just humming. She's got some beautiful lyrics to sink her. That, that's an incredible speaking. lyric, written at a difficult time in Cynthia's life, and um, I think it's it's really heartfelt. Uh, another song that that came out of deep emotion is uh, "Don't Know Much." Mm. She wrote for Barry, her husband, on his on or around his fiftieth birthday. Uh-huh. when they'd been together for 25 years or more and uh, yeah she could just you know every songwriter of course man and while as well <laughs> have songs they used to call them trunk songs but have songs that have never been recorded and and there's a song there are two songs Barry, Cindy and I wrote together that have never been recorded that I think are among certainly among my favorite songs I've, I've written. And, and one of them shows you the depth of her kind of soul and feeling. And I can say this without anybody else hearing the song. I mean, hopefully we'll get it recorded. But Barry and I wrote a piece of music. And sometimes we would write music and she'd be in the room. And then when she got bored of us going on and on in endless anal details, she would leave. But in this case, she wasn't. I don't even think she was present. And we wrote this piece of music and we both, I mean, to have Barry Mann say to me, this is one of the best pieces of music I've ever written. Wow, what a thrill that was. So when we were done with the music, um, he turned to me and he said, I want you to come with me and I want to drive down to our house and I want to play this for Cynthia. And I'm going to tell her that if she doesn't love this as much as I love it, we'll get somebody else to write the lyrics. I thought, thought, whoa, that's a little extreme, but okay. So we drove down and we played it for her. And she said, I love it. And Barry said, no, 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 no. you got to love it the way we love it. She said, well, I've got to live with it a little more, but I love it. I want to work on it. He said, well, okay, okay. And, you know, a day, two days, something like that. We came back and um, she handed it to us. Or maybe we got to the studio, whatever. She handed it to us. And she'd written a lyric called Nobody Told Me. And the chorus said, nobody told me about this. Nobody told me these emotions exist. There is a place beyond love where the heart can go. Nobody told me, but now I know. 
Oh, isn't that beautiful? And I turned to her and I said, God, and the verses are, and the bridge just as good. And I said, wow, you know, you've totally nailed it. What a great love song. And she said, yeah, I wrote this about the first time I held our daughter. Oh, my God. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. We're, we're talking with Phil Galston, and he's a songwriter and a producer and an educator. And we're talking about the late, great Cynthia Weil. Uh, a little bit about the rivalry between Carol King and and Jerry Goffin and Man and Wild. Uh, they both wrote songs for the monkeys. And I like the monkeys. I'm a fan of the monkeys. And Carol King and Jerry Goffin wrote a lot of monkey songs. And I think Cynthia Wilde and Barry Mann wrote one monkey song, but it's Shades of Grey, which I think is the greatest monkey song ever. Yeah, well, you know, it's very interesting. Um <clears throat> Barry wanted to be a recording artist. Barry had started as a recording artist. He recorded Who Put the Bomb. Yeah, right. Right. And there, Barry has made records. He made a lovely record about, I don't know, 15, even 20 years ago of many of their hits. Um, but I think when the Monkees were biggest, I think I'm right, he was pursuing a recording career. And in fact, it's a little known fact. I don't think he'll mind if I say it, that um, there are two songs that are legendary Man and Wild songs that they wrote for Barry to record. And the first one was, believe it or not, We Gotta Get Out of This Place. Oh, which became a huge hit for the animal. And, you know, the, one of my greatest pleasures with, look, I loved writing with them. I loved eating out with them. They would never let me pay unless they were in New York. Then it could be my wife's and my treat. Um, and they would drop these. I said they opened so many doors. They would just drop these experiences on me one night. And by the way, they didn't want me to stay in hotels when I came to work with them. They wanted me to stay at their house. And there was kind of a wing that I could stay in. It was, you know, they just were incredibly generous. They would ask me if I wanted to borrow a car. You know, it was just fantastic. Yeah. We, we really had a deep friendship and they loved our kids, which was really great. And, and, and my wife, but um, writing with them was a great joy. And you can imagine what a, what a thrill, but then I would get to hang with them and ask questions about the Brill Building. And Barry, who's a great raconteur, would love to talk about it. So um, I remember one night, I think it might have been the first night, my wife Nancy met them. We had dinner out and we went back to their house. And I asked a question and Barry said, would you like to hear some demos? Oh, great. And we sat there for two hours, two and a half hours. I mean, Nancy was on East Coast time. She was falling asleep. And I just wanted more. Eventually, they gave me all of the demos. I have I have all oh, of them. Nice. Including, and, we've got to get out of this place. I yes, think. which they wrote and, and Barry arranged as a, uh, very much in the Phil Spector, multiple pianos, multiple basses, two drum sets, et cetera, et cetera. This is a demo. And it was a much angrier song it's it's second verse. I don't remember it. You probably can find it somewhere online. 
um, was much more specific about uh, racial discrimination. Mm. So that, that's what it was about. The fact that it became an anti-war anthem later was just, you know, a tribute to its power. But, um, <clears throat> excuse me. So they wrote this song, they demoed it. And now it's on hold for Barry. When they get a phone call from their British publisher who says, you've got a gigantic hit over here. It's racing up the charts. And they say, which song, which record? And he says, it's this new group, the Animals. Maybe you've heard of them. They said, yeah, we've heard of them. They had a hit here. He said, yeah, we got to get out of this place. (laughs) (coughs) What are you saying? Right? (laughs) And then Cynthia told me, they said, Barry, and they said to the publisher, we'll send it over. So record arrives and they listen to it. And she's heartbroken because Eric Burden repeated the first verse. Twice. Twice. Yeah, it doesn't say the second verse. Her angry political statement didn't even get used. And nobody's ever heard it. Oh, my God. Right? So the second song later in their career, uh, believe it or not, was Here You Come Again. Oh, the Dolly Parton uh, hit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, so they wrote that for Barry. Yep. Uh-huh. And, then, and so yeah. is there a demo of Barry? Yeah, and there's a demo of it. I don't remember how it got to, to Dolly Parton. But um, yeah, and that's one of the few songs she recorded that she didn't write. And, and it only sold a billion copies. So yeah, I'm and, sure and, and probably, all the way to the bank. <laughs> that's right. And probably uh, if you went out in the general world and asked, what's, a fam- what's the most famous Dolly Parton song? Those who don't know that she wrote, I Will Always Love You, would yes. probably say, oh, yeah, nine to five or here you come again. Isn't that interesting when a songwriter of her caliber has a big hit by somebody else and she has a big hit by somebody else? That's pretty interesting. It is. It is interesting. It's a tribute. Well, you know, it gets back to what you were asking me about Cynthia as a lyricist. She could, um, she could imagine what an artist might say when she was writing specifically for them. Like um, she knew she was running for Shaka when she wrote Through the Fire. Mm-hmm. And she knew she was writing because she was writing with Lionel Richie for Lionel. Richie with running, uh, on running in the night and and um, running with the night. Excuse me. And um, but then she she wrote like when I when I say don't know much, which she wrote for Barry. They wrote that with Tom Snow, and then Bette Midler. Cut it. Yeah. No, Bette Midler did not have a hit. She cut oh. it. She ah. cut it. And I know uh, without going into too much detail, there was discussion about some lyric changes. Oh. Um, that's, I'm sure, not such a happy story. Anyway, <laughs> they were not, they were not, I don't think, thrilled with the record or the record didn't do that well. And then here comes this incredible opportunity for Ronstadt and Aaron Neville. Right, right. And, you know, wow. Forget it. But but to, you know, to look um, at at the film, um, An American Tale. It's a beautiful song. It's such a beautiful and, song. Yeah. And figure out 
how am I going to write this? And um, they knew that they wanted it to have this uh, magical quality. I can't remember if we talked about somewhere over the rainbow, but you know, this, that, that and that's what it has, yeah. right? It has that quality. Somewhere out there. Uh, did it win an Oscar? It must have been nominated. Yes. Yeah. No, no, it did not win the Oscar. Um, uh, what do you call it? Berlin's song from uh, Top Gun. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know. Take a breath. What's it called? Take my breath away. You take my breath away. Yeah. Well, that's a song. But that it did win a Grammy. Yeah, but... It did win a Grammy. Um, you know, in this era when people write sexually explicit songs that are, uh, you know, even, well, I'm not going to say nauseating, but maybe somewhat nauseating. <laughs> when you when you can hear a song like Just a Little Lovin' by Dusty Springfield, that is a beautiful sex song. Yes, I just read that Carol King said in a statement that that was her favorite Cynthia lyric. Ah, it is a beautiful yeah. song. And yeah, rendered is. by uh, Dusty so perfectly. Yes. Um, on, on the best album Dusty ever made, Dusty in Memphis. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's so many of these songs, you know, the, the to capture, um, he's sure the boy I love, and then, you know, whatever number of years later, 20, he's so shy, which you so beautifully put together in your tribute. That was fantastic. Uh, uh, I, I just love all those songs. Beautiful songs, and what a great yeah. songwriter. And it's good to know from you that she was also a wonderful, beautiful person. She was. She was so interesting. She wrote screenplays um, that almost got produced. A couple of interesting stories there. They got optioned. And she wrote young adult novels. Really? Oh, yeah. In recent years, she wrote a few. Yeah. And um, she was just, you know, she was ambitious in the best sense of the word. The two other qualities about her beyond the lyricizing. Um, she was, well, three. First of all, as I said earlier, but I just want to stress it. She was generous. And she was generous in that she had no problem making a connection for someone whose talent she respected. She did that for me many times. Uh, she would do it without asking. She would ask me, do you want to meet so-and-so? doors she just dropped these things on me so one night I was staying at their house and she said so you know we're going to go to dinner in a couple of hours you're coming right and I said yes she said oh great we're meeting uh we're meeting um Jerry and Mike and I said you mean Lever and Stoller <laughs> oh yeah come on so that was, that was fascinating fascinating um she uh, helped found a small group of women songwriters in the in the 90s who all things considered were were never treated anywhere as well as men were never given the production shots that men were uh couldn't as as songwriters began to demand to produce masters of their records women couldn't do that so easily so she brought help bring a whole bunch of these women together it was very supportive mutually supportive 
that was great. And she had another quality. She was an incredibly sharp business person. Hmm. She was a good strategist. She understood the way the business worked. She worked closely with their publisher. She was the lead person doing that. So when we wrote songs and were out there in the world, chopping them, we would strategize. And, you know, she did this at the time that she and I were collaborating on this. She was doing this in an era so different from the one in which they came up. Uh, I'll never forget after we wrote the first song, the, the, after the three of us wrote the first song together, uh, it's a song called Love Doesn't Ask Why, which Celine Dion recorded. Um, I remember Barry and Cynthia calling me. A lot of times they call me together and they said, so um, have you played this song for so-and-so? Have you played this song for so-and-so? We've sent it to this person, that person. And I said, yeah, you know, I haven't gotten a response yet. And, and I remember Barry saying to me, man, you know, it's already three weeks. And I said, Barry, three weeks? It takes months to get songs cut. He said, not in our day. You wrote right. a song, you made a demo, and it was out on the street the next week. <laughs> That's right. Run across the street with the 45 and put it on the radio. Really? It, it, <laughs> so they they really traversed and enlightened and entertained this whole period. Who About whom can you say? this in that way particularly because remember by my lights and i'm pretty sure i'm correct they were the most successful non-performing yes. songwriting team in pop music history very interesting i mean barry was technically a performer even though he never had a hit yeah, record but but well uh it's a fabulous legacy that she's left behind and and I, I i know you 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 must be feeling the personal loss as well as the professional yeah. one deeply deeply yeah i loved her she was did did, did did she continue to have ambition throughout her lifetime well the, in in the later years when we were would talk you know and I'm, 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 I'm once again I don't want anybody to get the impression we're talking about some old lady sitting in in, in her house watching television. This is a person always busy, always active, always ideas. Um, didn't seem to care about relaxation as much as Barry did. Um, and so in the later years, uh, it seemed that her ambition turned more to activities outside of songwriting. Barry is an avid photographer and uh, I think has found an outlet there a lot of times. He's very talented too. And um, so she worked on these young adult novels and then she and their daughter, who's a psychotherapist, Jen Berman, wrote a children's book called Rockin' Babies. And, <laughs> uh, you know, so, and she was a very, very devoted grandmother they're both devoted grandparents. Um, so, and you know, you're a grandparent uh, as well now, aren't you? I am a grandparent three times over. I and how is that going? There's nothing better. And in fact, this past weekend, the audience will be happy to know uh, that uh, I debuted the third song I've written in the series of three, one for each grandchild. 
<laughs> our first granddaughter, Lily, and uh, it went over very well. <laughs> My grandfather's a songwriter, and all I got was this song. <laughs> so I've written Theo, Gus, and Lily. So far. Oh, wonderful. Well, congratulations on that. Thank you. Uh, Phil Galston, uh, a wonderful songwriter and uh, educator. Teach you teach a class at NYU in is that right? NYU. In, I direct the songwriting program at NYU. Direct the. Songwriting. I do. I do somehow teach courses too. <laughs> <laughs> and and yet you still find some time to chat with us. And I, I thank you very much. It's always good to talk uh, to you. An honor, and may I say, very helpful. Thank you. You're listening to From the Bookshelf. I'm Gary Shapiro. That was Phil Galston. Great songwriter remembering another great songwriter, the late Cynthia Weil. Joining me now is Andrew Gooley. He is the managing editor of The Strand magazine. And Andrew, welcome to the show. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what is The Strand magazine? Well, The Strand is a quarterly magazine, and our main focus is uh, mystery stories, we also published interviews with authors, actors, directors, and we published articles and book reviews of mysteries and DVDs. And uh, how, how long has The Strand magazine been uh, around? 25 years. And sometimes uh, I wake up in the morning and I say to myself, maybe it's been 25 years too long. Andrew Gooley, the latest issue of The Strand magazine has an unpublished, previously unpublished story by one of the greatest writers of crime fiction in history. Yeah, James M. Cain. That's very exciting because I think he's one of the most uh, underrated of the noir masters. Uh, he uh, he just uh, wasn't trying the same trick several times and just decided to just be very creative and try many offbeat forms of noir or, or venture into literary novels. So to me, he's one of the most intriguing writers of the, of the whole group that were like Raymond Chandler, Dashiell Hammett, Cornell Woolrich, Jim, Jim Thompson, David Goodis. They all were fantastic writers, and I would be and I, I've published several of them. It was an honor to publish all of them. But for me, Kane has something very, very special about him because he was, I would say, the most unpredictable of all of these authors. And if you're like me, you like unpredictable writers. And, of course, uh, his most famous works are uh, The Postman Always Rings Twice and Double Indemnity. I think those would probably be, be the two most famous that people would know. Uh, what is your opinion? Why is it called The Postman Always Rings Twice? <laughs> well, the interesting thing about it is this. It's uh, when he submitted the manuscript... Um, you know, he was always, he was waiting for, this is, this may be apocryphal, may not be, but it was that he was waiting for a response that he was either rejected or he was not rejected. And when word came that the publisher was interested in publishing the work, the, the, the it came, I believe, via an express type of, uh, of, of mail, and the postman rang twice. And if if there was good news, the postman would always ring twice. Uh, I think he he sort of turned that around in in the in the novel, where the postman always rings twice was in a way how 
you can escape justice once, but you can't escape it twice. Or maybe in the case of the postman always rings twice, you can't escape it at all. But that second knock on the door of uh, that second knock proved to be very, 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 uh, very telling for, uh, you know, for the two, the two main characters in the novel. It's a great, it's a great novel and it's been filmed twice, but I don't think either film uh, captures the, the greatness of that novel. Yeah, I don't want to be too comfortable. I don't want John Garfield's ghost to haunt me. Uh, but, <laughs> uh, or I don't want to just find myself at find myself at a at a, at a Lakers game. Nicholson punched me. <laughs> but uh, but I have to. I, I do agree with you. I don't. I don't think that either. Uh, I don't think that either film did it justice. I think the uh, the John Garfield movie kind of had that 1940s pro death penalty message about you know where the uh, where the corrupted criminal is willingly and happily going to the chair and you know we can just close the book justice was done the criminal was fried and we can all feel better about ourselves yeah. um and the movie filmed in the 80s was just uh, it was lurid. It was graphic. It was uh, it was a very very dark, gratuitous film, and I think a lot of the writing, a lot of the moral dilemmas involved in involved in the works of James M. Cain were just very very lost in a film that just felt sordid. It was it was kind of like one of those films where you feel you need to take a shower after a scene. <laughs> and I know I'm going to go a little off topic with this, but uh, I saw a film years ago with my brother and it was uh, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. Oh, wow. And it was Sidney Lumet's last film. And I had never seen a Sidney Lumet film in the theaters. I said, I have to see this movie. I have to see I have to say that I can see the film, a film uh, on the screen by the director who did so many great films, such as The Hill, uh, you know, The, the Hill, and then I forgot the other famous one, uh, Twelve Angry Men, of course. Sure. So I, I, I saw that movie, and it was so, so dark that I, I had trouble sleeping after seeing it. Uh, and I... <laughs> and uh, the the uh, the 1980s version of uh, of the postman always rings twice really reminded me of before the devil knows you're dead it was you know maybe maybe these are great movies because you know we will never forget them but i don't know i just uh, we may not forget them but we won't see them again <laughs> i won't see either of those <laughs> again although i do love lumet and i think he was a wonderful director uh, some of his other movies that you know that stick with me uh I loved uh, um, Failsafe. That was incredible. I loved... Oh, so Failsafe was another one. And Walter Matthau was, was fantastic. And I've always... Walter Matthau was just great in comedies, but also he was just very good in dramas. He was just... Oh, he was. It's, it's hard to believe how he could just, like, switch from, you know, you know the uh, Oscar from The Odd Couple to this very, very dark man during the set during the cold war and also another actor i really liked and it was larry hagman because right, as yeah. as i mean you know that our, our magazine i would say proud but i do i do i like <laughs> i remember him from i dream of genie but yeah he's he's uh he's very dramatic and i mean that's a, that's a great movie everybody's good in it but i think you're right Matthau is an underrated uh actor 
in general. I mean, he was very funny and a great comedian, as you say. And uh, he won an Oscar for a comedy, which is unusual for uh, uh, the... Uh, yeah, Gary, you keep on getting cut off. I'm, it's very difficult for me to make. I can get, like, every other word you're saying. Only every other word makes sense. The rest of the words are not that interesting. <laughs> I was saying... I, I got you now. I hear you now. All right, good. Perfect. I was saying that uh, Matthau is underrated, and although he won an Oscar for a comedy, which is unusual for um, the fortune cookie... But he Oh, that he was great. He's great. I am attorney at law. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I love him in uh I mean he's a really fine actor. I love him in uh, the Taking of Pelham One Two Three, which is a great movie of his. Charlie Vance. I didn't see that one. I oh. didn't see that one. In fact I saw the the, the I saw part of the more recent one. Yeah. And I thought it was a but I didn't see the first, the, the, one, the original. Was put it, it, put it's it on a good your one? list. Oh, it's so great. It's really great. As a matter of fact, uh, in, you know, uh, Reservoir Dogs, the, the Tarantino film, uh, it, it draws heavily on the original Taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3. Oh, well, then I, def- I definitely have to see that. Reservoir Dogs is another one. When it first started, there was very violent thing. I was like, okay, I can't see this before I go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> you know, don't watch these movies before bed. Um, uh, well, so- yeah, I want to see, uh, I, I want to see Reservoir Dogs because I know Lawrence Tierney was in it. That's right. Lawrence you know, Tierney. Was, There's a new, he was a crusty, crusty gentleman in the house. <laughs> There's a great new book about Lawrence Tierney. Oh, there is? Well, yes. that's interesting. I thought you'd be forgotten by now. It's, it's, a, it's a new book, and it was written by Bert Kearns, and it's very good. I think you would enjoy it. Oh, I definitely have to. Put, definitely. That, put that on your list. He was, he was a great noir actor. He was. He was terrific uh, in, in many great pictures, including he played Dillinger. and Oh, he was great. Terrific actor. Uh, and, a, and a bizarre human being, which you'll find out if you read this book. But um, we've been talking about uh, – we're, we're talking with a- Andrew Gooley, and he is the managing editor of Strand Magazine. And uh, and we're talking ab- about uh, a new story by James M. Cain. And, uh, of course, you don't want to tell us too much about it, but what's the story called? The, the story is called Black Man. It's about uh, – the, the, the main character is uh, – veteran of the Korean War, and his buddy who was injured horribly during the Korean War is being blackmailed by the, his friends, by his, the, the, his buddy's sister-in-law. Uh, and there's twists, and it's not your typical James M. Cain story where nobody seems to have a heart. You know, you you have the typical people making bad decisions, people being liars, people being blackmailers, people being greedy. But the underbelly of it isn't a very, very, the porcupine underbelly of most of his works. There's more of, there's a little more sentiment and feeling in this uh, this short story than the usual vintage James M. Cain short story. Now, how come this story has never been published? Where, Where did you find it? This story was located in the Library of Congress, and I have some theories as to why Kane didn't publish this. And I think that during the you know during the forties and early fifties, he was kind of the toast of 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 the the world of noir and the literary world and Hollywood, and everybody loved him. 
And then after some books that were not very successful, he kind of felt abandoned and he kind of felt that he was a writer who was just trying to find his voice again and lost confidence in himself. And, um, and I just think that he refused to be the writer who would be, okay, you know, I tried this noir, I've tried this noir type of work. Let me go back to it. I think he was just somebody who felt that he wanted to experiment. He wanted to do something different. But I felt that, but I think that when he wrote the story, he just, it was at a very dark point in his career where he, where he lost. He felt that, you know, this may have felt derivative. This may have felt like he was just, you know, going on the noir works that worked in the past, but maybe people lost t taste for them, for his works. And maybe people would not be interested in publishing him again. So I'm very, very happy to be publishing it. But at the other hand, and I've done this so many times of publishing many unpublished works where you publish it, but in a way you feel a little bittersweet because you, you can see that this is a very, very good work and that this should not have just, you know, this should not just be put away and never seen again. But you also feel like, hmm, you know, this writer probably wasn't the best judge of their own work because it's just a very, very fine work and deserved to have been published a long time ago. Where can people get The Strand magazine? Uh, they can get The Strand magazine at most Barnes and & Nobles and independent bookstores and also on our website, strandmag.com. And I have to stress Strand Mag. Because if you go to Strand Magazine, you'll be going to a, a tourist magazine from Myrtle Beach. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you won't find any James M. Cain. Uh, the interesting thing is, as a friend of mine, uh, a friend of mine was visiting from uh, from, uh, in fact, from Tiburon last year, and he said, "You know, I'd love to do anything to support you." So I subscribed to. Strand Magazine. I went online and subscribed to <laughs> strandmagazine.com and I said, well, that wasn't you'll helpful. be wanting to visit Myrtle Beach soon. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I, it sounds great and I, I can't wait to uh, read the story. What year was it written? I, I would venture to say probably in the mid to late 50s. Hmm. Yeah, and uh, he, he really wasn't publishing a lot I mean, I think most of the novels that we know of his, I guess The Butterfly was published in maybe 47 or 47. Yeah, I mean, he was publishing some stuff in the 60s and 70s, and they were not well received. And I, I, want, to, I want to be that person that will try to read some of his, his, his later works. I mean, some critics have panned them, but, you know, I never listen to critics because I just think that, for the most part, it's it's very, very easy to criticize something, very, very easy to demolish a building or a work, but very, very difficult to build somebody up or to construct anything. So I'd like to be the judge of that speaking for for myself. But, I, you know, he published some novels here and there. One of them was about the hijack of an airplane. I believe he published that in the 70s. Mm. And uh, for, for a... For a noir author, he ended up outliving all of them. Yeah, that's right, because he lived... I, I'm not sure. Maybe David Goodis lived past him. I don't think so, but I, I believe he died 